Welcome back, everybody, to the Self Storage Income Podcast. We have another incredible episode lined up for you today. But before we get into that, huge shout out to all of our amazing sponsors Janice International, Store Local, Live Oak Bank, and Tenant Inc. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You guys probably hear us talking about these guys on the podcast all the time. Janice International, tons of amazing people, tons of amazing products, services, their Noki service, their R3 program, all these different aspects to help you build an amazing storage facility or upgrade your storage facility. Uh, just a fantastic group. Store local. It's honestly one of the biggest threats to self-storage is, is market consolidation and everything that goes along with that. So enter Store Local, the largest storage co-op in the world. Just amazing people again, tons of tons of awesome people there and uh, amazing solutions to bring everybody's resources together and uh, utilize those in an effective way to be able to compete and also uh, thrive in a world of competition with some of these larger REITs and the big players in the self-storage industry. Check out Store Local. Amazing, amazing opportunities there. Live Oak Bank. I don't know how many of you guys came to our live event in Coeur d'Alene just this past year, but uh, we had some amazing conversations with Live Oak Bank there, and they were probably one of the most popular uh, <laughs> topics there in our, our breakout sessions. And and people want to know. They, they want to know the financing. You guys want to know what the solutions are, what the deals look like, all these different aspects to financing. Live Oak Bank is that answer specifically for self-storage. They specialize in storage, which is just incredible. There's no learning curve for them to understand the asset. They know it. They've been there before, and they can help you see things that you might not even be seeing yourself. So Live Oak Bank, amazing. Check the link in the show notes. And last but not least, Tenant Inc., Tenant Inc. is an incredible slew of products and services, essentially, for your storage facilities to help automate, to help streamline, to help optimize your business and your storage facility. They've got uh, their Hummingbird platform, Nectar platform, uh, their Mariposa platform. Just to scrape the surface here, their, their property software, the big thing about this is the API is open. So you guys can actually, you, you own your data, you can use other third parties and back that into your systems. It's not this closed system that, that only uses proprietary X, Y, and Z. You guys have total control over your data, total control over these various aspects of running your business, uh, running your storage facility. And uh, they just got some amazing products. Again, these are storage owner operators that have created and developed these solutions. And uh, it, it's just an amazing platform. So check it out. Without further ado, guys, here's the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Hey, everybody. It's AJ Osborne, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit before I roll out today's podcast. So I have another podcast called AJ Osborne 
podcast, which I talk about a lot of different things um, that are relevant to the economy, business, investing principles, strategies, what we're doing that may not be specifically to self-storage. Now, we just did a big revamp of that podcast, rolled out kind of a new format in the way that we're doing it this year that gives me a lot more, I think, creative freedom. I'm only going to have on very select people that I choose, and I'm going to very talk, talk very openly about our projections and what's happening, trying to give a lot more insight into a better range than purely just self-storage of what we do, what we've done in the past, businesses we've owned, etc. Now, a big question that we have that is affecting a lot on the overall outlook for self-storage and all assets is the performance of the United States and where we're at at this current moment in this, this market cycle, including the overall standing of the dollar. Now, when we look at these things, it's very complex. And I broke down all this data that we've uh we've accrued and we have internally into the AJ Osborne podcast. But because it does affect self-storage, my investing, my outlook, I thought, you know what? This is an important one that I should probably put on our self-storage income podcast as well. And that's what you're going to hear. It's a breakdown in our overarching standing on the uh, uh, United States, its economy, the reserve currency as a dollar, and the data that we're looking at, um, and the good and the bad, and what our outlook is from that. So here it is. I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome, everybody, to the AJ Osborne podcast. And today I'm going to be diving deep into some critical numbers. And we are going to be talking about some overarching themes, some things that we're hearing, and I want to put a lot of context to the overall position of the dollar. And we're going to be looking at this from lots of different angles, but the understanding and trying to really get a grip of what's going on and the future of the dollar, how it's represented, it's holding on the world, what that means, and its overall significance. Uh, being a world reserve currency is beyond impactful. It's even hard to truly comprehend. And when was reserve currencies shift, that is a fundamental shift in world order. And that can really challenge uh, the countries and it creates massive contention, uprising. It can create uh, normally, almost always wars, particularly world wars. Um, it's, it's a big big deal. And reserve currency uh, countries benefit from lots of things, and they tend to prosper dramatically. So the question is, um, what is the world's current reserve currency, the by far leader of the pack, the dollar? Um, what is that outlook? And what is either weakening or strengthening that dollar? And, and the reason I bring this up and why I want to talk about this is you hear so much and there's so much noise out there. And we, people like to use single points of data to try to express views that basically fit narratives. And really we need to look at this as a four dimensional thing and understanding um, what position the dollar is in, what its future may look like. Now, the first thing I think needs to be said is 
Obviously, we don't ever know the future, and nothing lasts forever. And I mean this very seriously. The world reserve currency um, can change. The United States um, could not be the leader of the pack. Uh, but there's certain things that need to happen. And that will be a very violent time. It could happen um, I don't want to say at any time, um, but let, let's go through some of these numbers and it's going to kind of give you perspective. But once again, that does happen. There's nothing permanent and massive things change that we don't, we can't see and we don't know about. And I want to talk about uh, not so much theoreticals in the future, but understanding right now where it sits and uh, the likelihood of different things changing. And it might give you a perspective on what would need to happen to change certain things. So we're going to dive in and I want to start, first of all, by understanding uh, for anybody in, in question what a reserve currency means. So the United States has been a reserve currency now for uh, a long time. What happened is we got off the dollar, right? And Or excuse me, we got off the gold standard. And what we did when we got off the gold standard is we allowed ourselves to take on more debt. We allowed ourselves to manipulate money in a way um, that was much more beneficial in lots of ways than, than it ever could have been before. But in the process, we also convinced all these countries that the dollar is better than gold and they should have their money uh, – not uh, to be benchmarked off the dollar, and they should have the dollar as the reserve currency as opposed to gold. Well, this creates us to be a financial engine in the world, and this allows um, obviously to us to um, exact power um, and to leverage our money and position. Um, it's a very, very powerful thing. And right now, the ex so for the exchange reserves, so foreign exchange reserves, right, we're, we're right about the U.S. dollar is around 62% of the overall holdings. Now, this is, you know, ginormous to give you any idea on the absolute size of it. The euro is hands down the next in line, which is the next closest competitor at 20% of the holdings. After that, you don't even have a reserve exchange, uh, uh, a foreign exchange reserve holdings of like 10%. It drops down to 5%, the Japanese yen. And when you go down to China, it's 2%. It's just nothing. Um, and when we look at the overall, so when we're dealing with the dollar and the backing of the dollar and how people use it, how it works within society, we're really looking at a lot of changes over the year. How much does people trust the dollar? Where's money going, right? And where are the investors, the countries? What are they backing? As you know from investment theory, right, we have lots of uh, trends, waves. The money's looking for yield, stability. Um, we're trying, people are trying to protect from downside. And then money moves in and out of countries uh, depending on where large corporations take it, as well as money managers. Um, and we're going to talk about the flows of money and where investment is going in, in, here in just a minute. But really, we want to look at a big picture and look at overall changes. So when we look at a percentage of allocated reserves, the United States has less than it did in 2000. But with that said, there has not been one that has really stepped up 
and said that it took a large domination, uh, uh, a large percentage of that share. Really, the euro, who is next in line, is basically flat. Um, it's, I think, one or two percentage points higher since 2000 um, to now. Other currencies as a whole have risen from 10% to 5%. And then the Chinese has risen from zero in 2000 to 2%. Which once again, when you look at this, we're looking at how... So if we're looking at the overall reserve growth and where that stands, it's really important to not understand uh, understand motives and why. And, and what we see when we look at motives, why, where things are happening is it was very clear. So when, when you're looking at early the early 2000s, that's when we kind of saw a drop in the overall reserve growth as a total percentage, right? Um, but the moment things started to get hectic, and in the 2000s, and particularly 2008, there was a massive increase in percentage, and we had a large growth um, in the change of reserves to the dollar, uh, meaning that the dollar's um, overall reserve growth, right? That change, it started to go up. And then what we saw is continually after 2014, a massive rise um, and change uh, when we're looking at those reserves or how people view it. Now, when we're looking at the reserves, that that's only part of the holding. Really, we want to look at not only how people are reserving and viewing the safety of the dollar, which the dollar is um, something that we can see people flee to for safety. Um, there's another thing that we're try I try to look at and I try to understand, and that's the capital inflow. So really, when you're talking about the dollar, you're betting on the horse and jockey, which is the United States as a whole. And when we're talking about currency, you have to understand that the currency is basically, I view it, kind of like a stock in a company, right? Um, but we're not looking at it for next... Uh, uh, growth. I'm not looking for the stock to go up. I'm looking at its ability to be stable, pay its bills, everything else. Is that company going anywhere? Because currencies are flights to safety. You're not trying to very really make money off of it, right? It's supposed to be the lowest form of risk. And so the United States as a whole, I want to see how the world feels about the United States. And this is something that I learned that was really important when I lived in Brazil. Um, there was a lot of people that had a lot of problems with the United States, but all of them would have given almost their life to send their kids there. And I learned that foreign views of the United States um, particularly are very contradictory. And what I mean by that is people say things but do complete other things. And everybody, of course, hates the leader of the pack. And the United States isn't perfect, and there's a lot of re reasons to hate it, right? But at the end, there's kind of a bias towards the winner. And we do see that in the form of the fact that capital inflows do not reflect overall sentiment. So when we look at the overall capital inflows into the United States— it's exploded since the early 2000s. Um, when you look at its growth rate by 2015, I mean, it really picked up. You know, when we're looking at inflows in trillions, foreign direct investments to the United States in 2000 in trillions of US dollars, in 2000, it was 1.2. By 2020, it was 4.6. And we basically saw it took 
essentially from 2000 to uh, you know 2012 to double. And then it had more than doubled in the next five years and continued to go up. There's this massive growth right when it seemed like sentiment was overall negative. And what we saw is China started to directly invest massive amounts after 2012. So did Europe. Europe started to explode. I mean, their direct investment into the United States after 2013 doubled alone by 2015. I mean, it was a massive increase. It went from 2000, not even a trillion, to 3 trillion by 2020 and growing. And this is an annual foreign direct investment into the United States. So the other superpowers are just dumping money into our country. Um, And when you look at where that money was going, I was almost more surprised than anything. In 2019, 40% of it went into manufacturing. I got to lie, I didn't see that coming. Um, When we looked at the other sectors that was really pouring in, we had financial and insurance, which that makes sense. We're the financial power of the world. Um, Then you had wholesale trade, holding companies, which are non-banks, which I think that's more kind of like me and what we do. You have banking, professional, scientific, technical services. That one I would have thought was more of a leader. Um, Information, retail, trade. And when I look at the percentage, I think it's important to know um, what I did is I took a lot of these things and I, I tried to understand what that capital meant going into it. Meaning some of these are more um financially, they're more financially heavy and the sectors themselves are bigger. They need more capital. And so that kind of can change the percentage and saying that, you know, just because manufacturing is the top doesn't mean that um, technical service um, professionals and scientific, right, that they weren't, it's just a different in percentage. Overall, though, it's really a wide ranging manufacturing, financial insurance, top two, wholesale trade, number three, holdings, companies, banking, professionals, information, and trade. Um, What we look at and what I'm understanding when I'm going through these capital inflows is, first of all, the reserve currency is very stable, as we have seen, particularly in downturns, but also when things are good. So in downturns, we see this, this, this switch in this, this rush to safety to the dollar. But then as things start to get good, we see a doubling up on capital inflows into the United States. So although there's all these talk and these sentiments, you know, people, people talk, they just talk, everybody talks, it drives me bonkers. But that's why I love economics is because you say one thing, but then you spend your money on another, right? If I really want to know a person, I don't, care what they say. I really care what they spend their money on because that will tell you more about a person than anything else, because that is they're putting their mouth where them uh, they're putting their money where their mouth is, right? That's an actual action. That means it's a sacrifice. What that tells you is priorities. Okay. That's really what matters. And so when I'm looking at this and all of this noise in the world, I start to say, now, hold on here. What's going on now? The next side of this is I have to understand competition. Okay. In order for the United States to lose its standing, there has to be a clear competitor, right, that can replace it, meaning all this capital in the world with all these countries that hold this money, I've got to move into a currency or a reserve that I believe is a strong and stable 
as the U.S. dollar. So first of all, we look at the engine that drives growth, the United States, which money around the world is betting on our economy as opposed to theirs or other economies. Dollars are flowing in at mass. It's just mind-boggling in compared to how much money flows in here compared to the rest of the world, right? So first of all, the engine, right? The thing you're betting on, when we look at that, people are saying, we're betting on this happening. Then when things are going wrong, where do they run to? They run to the dollar because they bet that the dollar will be stable and it'll last. So now, obviously there's things and there's change and there's weakness. Once again, I'm not None of this is saying that the United States is perfect. Anything else? That's not at all. We're going to talk about that. We're going to have flaws. The key when we're looking at other countries and replacement, it's not who's the best, right? It's not not even that. It's simply we're looking at who people are going to bet on in comparison to others. So it's not that anyone's perfect. It's not that anyone's even great. You just have to be better than the rest. That's all that matters, right? So people vote with their money. And if I got to pick something... If I have a trillion dollars and I say, okay, it's between that and China, I'm going to look at overall yield growth, but I'm also going to look at safety protection. Where am I putting my trillion dollars? Because if I lose this, it bankrupts my country. If I lose this, it bankrupts our firm, shareholders, everything else, right? So it doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter on their their what their perspective is on even the politics, anything else like that. They're betting on, which shows when the world had the most problems with our president, right, that we was uh, Donald Trump, which we said every country hated him, right, and there was all this negativity. They said your country's burning and you're losing. Under that time, the dollar reserve currency grew and so did capital inflows into the United States by massive amounts, not small amounts. Like it, the, the growth year to year supercharged. That's a pretty big disconnect when I look at what's the theme, the say, and then what those countries are actually doing and how things are actually performing. And this is really important to me because once again, I don't care what people say, what they think. I care what they're going to do. And that's how I look at our investment strategy. When I'm looking at the capital that people are giving us that we're allocating within the economy, I'm looking at individual markets. I want to be pragmatic. And so should you. I talk a lot about when making uh, investment decisions, try to analyze your own biases take them out. You need to listen to everything, but you don't accept everything, right? And you need to see how bits of information play into the larger investment theme. That's on a macro and a micro, right? When I look at certain things, there's certain economies that I invested in in the last two years that I wouldn't have in the in three years prior. Three years prior, I would have said that was the best, uh, uh, that, that local economy that we're putting tens of millions of dollars into, that is not the best place for our money to go. Three years later, I say, nope, it is. And then I'm putting my money there. Why? Well, I'm pragmatic and things changed and my views are less important than the reality of the situation, the investment and what's going to happen. And I have to be willing to understand that and change. If you're not, you have no right to be taking other people's money because it's not about you right? It's about your return, how much you can yield and what you can do. That's all that matters. And you don't want to be giving your money to people that are um, using your money to express their 
overall teams or worldviews when you need that money to survive. That's different when you're talking about donations, handing nonprofits. That's something totally different. And that's how I look at other countries. What you, you say something, but what are you doing? And what does that really mean? Because if there was a change in this, that would start to get me really nervous about overall economic long uh, term performance of the United States because capital drives investment. It drives all of the innovation. It drives everything that we need for our economy to outperform. So compare that to other co- countries, more capital's coming here, more demand. We are going to outperform other countries, right? And when we look at why and the other countries compared to, the thing is, I've got to understand the the number one competitors. It's now in the world we're break we really have kind of broken up since the world wars into um, you know, our allies, the Axis and allies. And when we look at competing economies who we view as en- enemies, overall themes, capitalist, uh, capitalism and democracy against uh, authoritarianism, authoritarianism and uh, communism and different things like that, um, the world's still kind of divided up like that, in particularly money formation, which makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to dive into. But the first thing we need to hit on is the number one, what I would consider the number one currency that we could even have an argument that could probably um, replace uh, the United States, which is obviously the second largest one, which is the euro, which is 20%, right? Now, when we look since 2002, in the early 2000, the role of the euro was, uh, you know, really rose. So we, we had this overall international role for the early 2000s really roll uh went up but then by 2008 it dropped and it really dropped back down to where it was in 1990 or the 2000s and we saw a stabilization after 2015 where it stopped dropping stopped plateaued so basically over this time it's been broadly flat um now not that that's a bad thing that it's it's considered stable. But one of the things that we had a problem with is we learned during the financial crisis, which was so interest to me, interesting to me when I was studying overall what was happening in the United States and then other countries. In the United States, we had a financial institutional problem associated with debt leveraging obscure products that got super out of control, right? But what we found with the euro is that the countries were the ones that got out of control. That is a very different thing. I mean, you had some countries that had basically tanked themselves, right? Um, and there's a few great books on it that you can read. Um, I'll get those books. Shoot, I got to get that um, uh, book. Some of my favorite books. But, you know, we had um, countries within the European Union that weren't collecting tax revenue. They were just loading up on debt. And most of the world had no idea the position they'd got themselves in. They were essentially like our banks. Nobody knew what was really going on. And then when the water went out, we found all the countries that, you know, were swimming with their shorts shorts off. And the United States was in a position to where they could stabilize um, what was going on, right? And they could fix it. Uh, and the other countries were not. And so they said, well, you know, it was our banking system that caused the crisis. Yeah, but the next crisis that unfolded wasn't our banking system's problem. It was the fact that those countries had taken on astronomical debts. The countries basically acted like banks, which is obviously super bad. 
And what we found was really strong countries like Germany that had great bankings, they started to have to bail out the European Union. And the European Union all of a sudden looked very, very weak. We didn't even know if the euro was going to survive. In fact, a lot of the stronger countries wanted to stop bailing out the weaker ones, which they had limited control. And what I learned through that period of time was that when times are good, the euro is really good. And that's what we see when we look at the euro's overall strength. When times were good from the 19... Uh, you know, late 1990s to 2005 and six, that role went way up, right? That role of the European Union, it took on way more of a role in the um, world uh, stage. And during good times, the euro was strong. Um, in fact, it was great. But then when things weren't good, it completely, it completely not fell apart, but it almost did. And when you're looking for safety, right? Those things are a big, big concern. Now, I'm not worried about the euro or the, the a country going anyways or anywhere, and we're going to talk about it. We view it as a stable currency, um, but I think there was a reality that came after 2008 that said, you guys really mismanaged your affairs, and your power is really weak, and thank goodness we had you know Germany and their banks uh, to really offset this, because if it wasn't for them, which kind of sucks for Germany, right? But um, they kind of stabilized things, and, and, they, and they brought it back. Uh, but you never know when that happens, and, and it doesn't work out like that. So what we found was there was this lack of central control. There was this lack of central knowledge. It was like, what was really going on? And that, I think, really pointed out a lot of weaknesses in the euro that didn't exist in the dollar. And so we had more of a flow, and dollar looked safer than the euro at that time. So it really stopped and didn't pick up after that 20%. Uh, but still, it is the second most important currency in the world. And when we look at its uh, importance, we got to look at a few levels. We got to look at the foreign exchange reserves, international debt. We look at international loans, the foreign exchange turnovers, plus the global payment currencies. These things are not all the same. And the way that the currencies are used within them change. Now, first of all, the dollar is the leader in all of these. But in some areas, it's way more. International debt, for example, the dollar just trounces everything um, uh, except the euro is held uh, fairly stable in comparison. So the euro and the dollar in all of these different scenarios either shrink or grow by basically the same amount, except global payment currency. This was super interesting to me. And when I looked at it, I started to dive into it, where all of a sudden global payment currencies, the dollars and the euro was very close. Well, how they calculate that is based upon which countries use it, which that makes sense because there's so many countries within the euro. So when you're looking at the foreign exchange uh, turnover uh, turnover rate, that also, uh, I think the euro held up a little better, um, but it's it still, obviously, the, the dollar still dominated that, but um, I think that that held up a little better. Now, in any case, though, it doesn't matter if it's the dollar, the euro, uh, the euro trounces any other leading thing, which when you look at leading thing, you have the Japanese yen, and then you have the Chinese um Ren, renminbi. I, I always say it wrong. I'm sorry. But the Chinese renminbi, um, those two things that are next, they, they don't even reach, they don't even reach 50% of the euro, which is roughly 10% for the Japanese yen. And then less, or excuse me, 5% for the Japanese yen and like 2% for the Chinese 
um, Rimby. So it, it, you just got to understand, and not even comparable, right? Um, and what happened with particularly the Rimby when we looked at China and China was all of a sudden making these great strides, which I'm going to talk a lot more about China. That's important. We're going to break into this data and we're going to look at it. Um, I have stacks of these graphs and charts and data, which I break up and we try to develop a whole a whole picture on what's going on. But when you look at, I'm going to stick with the euro for a second, we're going to move to China. Okay, So interest rates within the euro right now are negative. It kind of, I think, suffered a black eye from after the recession and its overall weakness. It was able to keep it, stabilize it. Um, but two, one of the reasons that it was able to keep and stabilize was because of the dollar and they are an ally of us. So the United States, um, we send a lot of our dollars into their banking systems. And between Germany and before between Germany, obviously the European Union, um it, it, it Germany and and, and uh, Britain and you have a couple others, but you have some really bad players in that European Union as far as government affairs. You know, you're talking um France as well as well as uh others that are just, you know, they did, they really mismanaged their affairs. Um, and it's not something that I think if I was looking at a company, I would bet on to be stable, meaning that, man, there's a few hiccups and these guys could really suffer. Now, when you look at wh whether it's Britain or Germany, right, they are super stable. And Germany is probably one of the most stable countries in the entire world. And I think it would be a very different thing if Germany wasn't a part of the uh, European Union. But also, the European Union has a problem of resources size. So when we're looking at all of them together, big, but their economies singled out when you're looking at capital inflows, where people are betting on, right? These are stagnant economies um, that in general they pay, and we say this, and I'm, I'm only comparing this to the United States. In comparison to the rest of the world, these are booming, right? But most of these economies within the European Union, they're fairly stagnant. They have very, very high social programs that they can't afford when things go bad. And so they are really balancing act after the strong and the weak, but also what you can bet on, meaning the total economy, manufacturing technology, everything included, right? When you single them out, it's very small. Um, I mean, I don't, I, you know, I should have got this number, but I don't even know what California alone is compared to every single country, but it's bigger than all of them. In fact, it's, you know, it, California is the third largest economy in the world on its own. So it's really hard to say, and although we have states, which are separate, we're all together. We can't separate ourselves. That's not how it works. The European Union is separate. So those are some of the things that when you're looking at with the European Union, the strengths, but also the weaknesses um, that happen. Because I, I, I do believe that the euro is the, obviously the next best solution compared to the dollar. Um, but that is a lower solution that the world's betting on as of now. So when I'm looking at the overall um, debt securities associated with the world, meaning international debt securities that are being traded, okay? So the U.S. dollar since 2005 has risen dramatically to 65%, um, where in 2005, the European Union held over just over 30%. Um, of those, and that has dropped down to 20%. So we see drops also in other uh, other formats. And what we look at when we're looking at the cons uh, currency-dominated demand, uh, or excuse me, 
currency-dominated debt insurance, right? So that overall com uh, composite of the uh, the foreign debt insurance. When you look at like 2008, the United States was in chaos. It, it kind of suffered quickly. Um, but then, and the euro went from 2002 and it like met the United States at this weird time in 2008 at 40% of these debt, uh, of the, the currency dominated debt insurance um, really quickly, but then it immediately reversed. And it was very clear at that time when people, I think, were worried about the United States through the crisis that all of a sudden we found right at 2008, um, hold on, the European Union has these big problems. And European Union went from 40% down to 20%. And the United States shot immediately back up to over 60% and now is almost at 70%. So this is a key time when we're looking at these currencies. And there was this clear understanding. Um, so this is number two, right? Okay. We're talking about the second largest currency in charge. We're talking about the one that I think is the most viable. Now, the one that we hear a lot about is obviously China. Now, there's a reason when we hear a lot about China, because China in a lot of aspects is considered the United States' number one competition. Now, it's considered this because of growth rate, economic power, and its overall growth. The, the China um, has a very real probability of surpassing the United States in its total economy. The economy as growth has slowed down dramatically. I mean, it's been gone from 12 to whatever it is now, like 6%. And that, that, that growth rate is estimated to keep slowing. And in fact, in the next five, 10 years, it's actually estimated to mirror more of the United States, which of course, right? So every country goes through growth and contraction phases. In the United States, we went through our growth phase. We had the industrial revolution, right? We went in the technology revolution, but our land has been segmented up. Um, the resources have been taken from our economy. We went through a massive growth phase. Our liabilities were low. Our liabilities are rising. Our production is lowering. Regulation is higher. The cost to do anything is higher. We are a stabilizing, stagnating economy. It's just true. The United States is. Where the last 10 years, China was the opposite. Now, it was the opposite because it was held back due to its very strict communist um, ability. And what happened was the... Uh, emperor at the time, sent some people out around the world. They came back and they told the emperor, they're like, hey, you got to understand. And this is in the um, 80s. And I think the first part of the 90s, it, it, or yeah, it was the 80s. It, they were like, we are really falling behind. Like, I don't know how to tell you this, but we went over and the stuff that we saw that was going on in Europe and the United States, it's crazy. And we are completely backwards. So then the um, the emperor went out and he went and looked around and he came back and was like, yeah, you're right. They sent all these people to our colleges to learn and then to come back and implement. And he started to open up segments of the economy, economy to capitalism. This is very important because this was the first time in the world that we've had a communist country in, um, bring in capitalism to run side by side. So capitalism is paired with most of the world in a democracy. Uh, China was the first one that said, hey, listen, maybe capitalism isn't that bad. We're a communist country, so let's try to overlay it. But we're not giving up power. We're still going to be communist. And what that allowed was certain parts of the economy 
to explode in growth, pent up demand, billions of people. And it started to get the effects of a capitalistic society and what it does when it has all these low hanging fruits and it can capitalize on them. And that created enormous growth rates. And they kind of segmented each out. And there was this idea that China is coming up. It is going to go all capitalist. In fact, Hong Kong is this bright, shining star. Now, what has happened in the last little while with China kind of put a damper on that. Um, the first thing that happened was China taking over Hong Kong, which was a travesty to Hong Kong. Um, now, a travesty to the people, to China, what it meant for personal freedoms. I mean, the stuff that goes on in China is horrendous by our Western American standards, right? I think it's horrendous by any standard period, but it's especially insulting, obviously, to us. Um, and when you look at what they do to their people, everything else is travesty. But when they took Hong Kong over, to be honest, that was kind of like a huge gift to the United States. Because what it did was all of these people that invested massive capital into the into Hong Kong, into China, thinking that there was going to be a real fundamental change, the takeover and the rigorous um, rules applied over Hong Kong because that was held uh, by – it was a British – uh, colony at one point, and they had a treaty and a relationship with China, and it, their term to that agreement was coming up. It came up, Hong Kong had, or China had promised they weren't going to do certain things, which they totally just ignored, and they did it anyways, and they really imposed a lot of the communist things on Hong Kong. We saw a flea of capital at that time, but it really showed kind of China's true natures. And it was like, ah, maybe we're really not turning around here. Um, that created a overall weakness because you have to understand in, in really socialist countries and really communist countries, capital is dangerous because I don't care if you're Ecuador, I don't care if you're Africa or somewhere else, you, you're a company and you put a billion dollars into infrastructure and then the country just says, oh, well, that's great. We're taking that over now, which happens all the time. So uh, companies after they've lost billions and countries after they've lost billions, they learn this pretty quick. I don't want to do that. And so when China starts to take over, it was like, oh, geez, this, this isn't a good thing. And so it made them seem left less secure. Obviously, it made them seem, oh, we could lose everything. And two, we don't have a stable outlook for the future. The United States does. They may be a mess, but there's certain things they can't do and aren't going to do. So their dollar is stronger than all these other countries, right? There's more inherent freedoms, right? That showed during the lockdowns, right? So all the other countries that complained about the United States and our lack of lockdowns and everything, all their money was pouring into the United States. So it was once again, it's this, you know, we, we, we say one thing, but we do another thing. So we say that's wrong, but we actually believe that's the correct thing to do economically. And we got to get our money out of here and put it in there. Um, so when you look at China, it was kind of one of those things where it told the world, listen, we, you know, we're not quite going where you want us to go or do that gave, a uh, United States, uh, a big boom as far as being, I think the reserve currency. So now let's go to the next part of all of this. And, I'm sorry, this stuff just really gets me interested. I'm totally all about it. It's fascinating. I hope I'm not boring you. But now let's pull, pull out, and we're looking at this world stage. Let's look, take a high-end view here, and let's look at the segments of these countries, our allies, right? 
um, as well as our enemies um, for this reserve country that we call the United States. Now, when we look at our enemies, China's number one economically, but they're also number one in another key factor, military. Okay, now this is another thing that I love to bring up and talk about that other countries give us crap for. We spend stupid amounts of money in the U.S. military, and I think there is endless amount of problems with the um, in industrialized military complex that we have going on, its involvement in politics, its involvement in lots of things, okay? I, I think that, that it got totally out of control and I think um, it was Truman who, yeah, Truman who warned us in his exit speech about it. I, I, I completely agree with those things. It needs to be revamping, but we got we got to kind of look at this at the whole state. We got to back this up. So, first of all, our number one competitor, which is Europe. Now, you have to understand, Europe and their massive social programs are largely benefited from the United States. And it is a critique that I have when they say things like, your social programs are weak, we would never let our citizens, right, go through what you guys let them go through. And it's like, well, yes, that's true, but also our military is basically covering you. So we as U.S. citizens are paying for a huge portion of your guys' subsidized programs. The United Kingdom, which has the biggest military, is only 7.6% of the United States. So China and Russia's military is multiple times bigger than the European Union. If it wasn't for the United States, the European Union would easily be owned by China and Russia. Like, it wouldn't even be a competition at all. The European Union's military is so small that it is basically defenseless by their neighboring number one enemy, Russia. And it is the United States that is essentially their military. We are. And that goes the same with Canada and Australia. Canada's military compared to the United States is only 2%. Australia's 3%. They're, they're nothing. It's like our, basically just our tank department, right? So not only the European Union, but all our allies, we are the military for those countries, which costs the United States astronomical amounts because China, who has 32% of ours and is growing rapidly. So when people criticize our military, and I have endless critiques against the military. Don't even get me started. But I have a real problem with the people that I'm spending my tax money on to protect critiquing me for spending my tax money on that. It, it, it really actually kind of bugs me, as you can probably tell, because it's our people that die. It's our money that has to go to this. And when we spend money on that, we don't get to spend our money on social socialist programs like you do in France. Well, you know, you have literally hundreds of billions of dollars in military that we're paying for. And it, we are the ones protecting against the rap fastest growing army in the world, which is China, which was nothing 15 years ago, and now is 32% the size of the United States. It is bigger than all of the European Union, plus Canada, Israel, Brazil, um, South Korea, Japan. It, it's bigger than all of them combined. Everyone, we are the only military 
that can even put a dent in China. And it is growing at a much faster rate than we are going growing. In 20 years, China at their growth rate on their military will be well over 50% of the United States military. That should be alarming to the rest of the world. Um, and two, we haven't even brought in Russia. So Russia alone, take out, uh, you know, you take out the United Kingdom. When you look at Germany, France, everyone else, Russia's military is bigger than, bigger than theirs. And it's bigger than theirs by, um, in a lot of these cases, astronomical amounts. And so when we look at the threats and the global stage of a reserve currency, how we play a role in it, you have economic, but then you also have military force. And our lack of subsidies and the things that we spend money on, a large percentage of this goes to our allies, of which, frankly, we don't really get a whole lot from. Now, we get to be the reserve currency, and that's kind of the deal. But other than that, that's money we don't get to spend on our citizens. So when you look at the United States, some of the biggest problems that I have is how much we spend as taxpayers on for the rest of the world that we get nothing from. Now, I, I understand roles things, and I don't want to get into this, and this isn't political at all. This is money, right? And so we don't get those social programs. The next thing is overall spending when you're talking on, um, when we look at the spending of the military in the countries and what is exported and imported, um, our technology, but also our, our healthcare. The amount of healthcare that came through our capitalist nature in the United States that is exported all over the world, which then gets to be used by subsidized countries, is astronomical, which we pay for here. So when we look at our role on the world, it's very four-dimensional. And two, it's very entrenched because our biggest competitor as a reserve currency is fully dependent on the United States. If the United States failed, the next biggest reserve currency would be at absolute risk of literally completely being taken over. Um, so a lot of the countries, they say a lot about the United States. They don't like us, thing like that, but they're fully dependent on us. They use our dollars and they invest in our economy. All of this together leads me to say right now, our biggest risks, right, China is the number one risk for the United States. It's military power, it's economic power, everything growing. Um, but a lot of the world, not a lot, most of the world does not trust China, which they shouldn't. China notoriously does not hold its international agreements. It breaks promises. It um, does what we would consider egregious things to its citizens. Um, it's completely communist. Uh, and it, it's a big threat to the world. So outside that, which is the number one threat, which the European Union agrees with us on that, then you have the European Union. Both of these are a fraction of the United States in economic and military uh, might. When you're talking about the European Union, it's, it's nothing compared to us. So right now, the European Union, it stabilizes off our dollar. It invests with us. And it depends on us for protection. So that 20%, when I say, is that going to become the reserve currency? How does that become a reserve currency when it's dependent on us just to be doing a lot of those normal things? Now, once again, this has nothing to do with the pros and cons. I'm not saying Europe's bad. In fact, they do unlimited amount of things better than we do in the United States. Unlimited. But when we're talking about a reserve currency, when you're talking about a superpower, 
And which, once again, we also know that the military might has stabilized for one of the largest peaceful times in the world, which I know you say, how could you say that there's wars things? You got to look at this as a big picture. Since the world wars, the United States being a superpower and the reserve currency has stopped most major world wars as a percentage of warring nation as the world's gone on. This is the longest time of peace we've ever had. It's, it's really actually shocking at the amount of peace the world has gone through because the United States had this massive club, which it abused. I'm not saying it didn't anything else, but that stopped all countries from warring. You want to mess with Europe? We're going to nuke you. That's a pretty big threat for the rest of the world, right? And we've already shown that we'll do it. That that created the state. Good or bad doesn't matter. It's And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stable economies growing and us investing in them, them investing us, and you betting on the horse and jockey. That's what you're doing here. You're betting on the horse and jockey. Our jockey is very limited in the United States, as shown with Donald Trump and Biden and everybody else. We like to complain about the presidents, but they're gone in four years. They don't matter. They're irrelevant. The president's not going to change your life. If you haven't gotten that yet, you're not an adult, right? Donald Trump isn't going to ruin your life. And Biden's not going to ruin your life. Donald Trump's not going to save your life. And Biden's not going to save your life. And that's why the United States is a good investment, people. Because they they matter very little in the long run. Now, it makes a lot of noise, and we fight, and we hate each other. And that is also one of the best things about the United States, people. You guys, other countries look at the United States and says, you're a mess. You're always fighting. Yeah, but we can fight. We have the ability to fight. And two, we do fight. If we don't believe in something, we fight for it. Whether it's your side or not your side, you need to be proud that people fight. Because what it shows the rest of the world, that this, what looks like instability, is a a contained crisis. Meaning, it's part of the process. We have been fighting internally in the United States over uh, themes, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing outlooks socially, economically, we fight over it all here. And we have very, very ranging views, but we don't massively move the needle. And that is really important because what it shows the rest of the world is you they can fight within the United States, but it's contained and limited. In most parts of the world, that is not true at all. When they fight, governments crumble. It's completely unstable. We manage the chaos here. It's not pretty, but we allow it. And frankly, I think it's good. You want people to be able to jump on a podcast and piss everybody off. The number one threats to the United States is um, canceling people. It's limiting people to be able to speak. It's overarching regulations, which stop the ability for us to all fight. Um, I think that the tech companies are a huge threat. They're monopolies. They own the internet. And I don't believe in monopolies. I don't, you know, the Gilded Age had all these problems. Um, The tech companies have all these problems. But our government has already shown that they'll break down monopolies. So short-term problems, right? People believe, okay, eventually you guys will get around to it. You'll break it up. And you're going to limit even monopolies' powers. So even though they are monopolies, we're still going to limit it. When we don't like it, we're going to uproar. And then the uh, country, our, our political system, will eventually break up those companies to limit their overall power. So 
I, we don't believe in centralized power. We don't want it in government. We don't want it in the economy because we want individuals to be able to fight to break up. And right now we are skewed in the United States way too far to centralized power, both in the government and both economically. It's clear. You can't argue with it, right? And those things need to be rebalanced. Those things always happen after long periods of peace, social, um, on, uh, social upheaval follows economic disparities, right? These economic disparities, uh, discrepancies between the wealthy, the rich, which is mainly driven through technology because technology is aggregators. They consolidate. So you have five companies that now are the most valuable companies in the world. They own the complete internet. They own everything, right? That's a problem. We're going to have to work on it, right? The government has frankly too much power now. We need to work on that as well. Um, and the United States will do it. We'll get through it, but it's going to be messy people. And we're going to have periods where the pendulum swings in the United States, probably way larger than in other countries. But we know that the pendulum, the pendulum swings, and that's the key. It doesn't stay. Uh, now, for us as citizens in the United States, it's our job to actually fight to when we see things that are not right, to stand up to them. When we, we see things that are wrong, when you talk about it, a lot of people don't understand that the income discrepancies between the super wealthy, right? And the not are largely concentrated into two problems and two problems only the technology and the government, the government through its bailouts and through everything else has devalued the dollar, which increased assets. The rich got richer because the government was making them richer. Well, you want to stop making the rich richer, stop printing money and increasing the value of the assets. If you want to get rich, buy assets. And that's the thing in the United States, we can. In China, you are very limited, hence why they have a housing bubble. And what happened with um, their housing crisis they're having now, I'm not going to get into it. I'll save that for another podcast. Um, but it was their only method in people in China to really gain wealth. In the United States, we have the opportunity to. Now, when it gets too far apart, you have a subclass of poverty that are in cyclical poverty. Now, I am a capitalist, but I know what poverty looks like, and I know what cyclical poverty looks like. Poverty that people can't get out of. It is not a pull your bootstraps up situation. I lived in favelas in Brazil for years, which people, we flushed our toilets with a bucket, right? It was, there was people with fully automatic weapons in the streets. And this is a country that didn't allow weapons, period, none. And it, it, you look at this poverty and the people that I loved, that I lived with in these favelas that were my family, that, you know, I, I lived with them 24 seven. I didn't go home. I didn't even talk to my family. It was just there in the early 2000s. There wasn't pulling up your bootstraps. This was a systematic pushing down people in poverty by a corrupt government. Well, in the United States, we have segment of the population that is in cyclical poverty. They can't get out of it, and it's embedded into them. This is something that my father broke out of, and he was in extreme poverty. He had to poach deer out here in Idaho for food. When I say poverty, I'm not talking about like poverty we see today in the United States. It's it's not comparable. People, you know, people that are on their iPhone running around and, you know, it's, it's not. He didn't have communication. He didn't have a bathroom. He didn't have running water, people. So, and this is in freezing cold Idaho, meaning in the dead of winter, he had to go out in negative, you know, just to go to an outhouse. 
my dad is 60 years old. He's not old, right? But this is the poverty that he lived in. Um, he didn't have a father. He his All his brothers and sisters ended up being drug addicts, died, and were homeless. He was the only one that broke out of it, right? Um, and I know what this kind of poverty does to other countries. It does to us, how it changes a human mentally, how it changes them. And they can, you know, for the most part, my dad was the exception. And that's very much... I think embedded views that we have on poverty and, and what we think we can do um, from looking at our family and what has gone on and how that's that's happened, right? But the key is some poverty you just can't get out of. And we need to do things to help it out. That can't be, you need everyone to participate. The goal is that you don't have centralized power, that it's decentralized, meaning that you, me, everybody has power, not only to vote, but economic power. And you don't want that massive discrepancy. And right now we have a system where basically political and economic power is held within five companies. And that's a problem. But at the end of the day, in the United States, we've shown that we'll take care of these problems, we'll get over it, and the pendulum swing is a good thing. And the rest of the world sees that. They see, yeah, you're a mess, but you're a stabilized mess. And we'll bet on you, we can bet on you for the future. All right, everybody, I, I'm, I know I'm going a long time. I don't mean this just to be either a soapbox spill, but it's we need to look at these things from all angles. We need to understand where this dollar reserve, uh, where the reserve currency, is it going to be lost? Is it not? What um, dangers do we have? Because right now I do believe in the United States, we have more dangers than we've ever had, but I do believe we'll come through and we'll go out of it. One of the main reasons though, you have to understand that I, I, I believe that we'll come out of it. No, when I look at the landscape, it's simply, well, who's going to take our spot. And right now there are no candidates that allows us, frankly, to be messier than we should be. That allows us to be dumber than we should be. Um, and the competition of China Coming up, stuff. I think that's a good thing. I think it'll actually help the United States. We'll shape up, but we can be pretty messy right now, and there's no one to take over that reserve currency. This is one of the reasons why everybody. I started my investment company, right? I, I, I'm a very believer that capital um, is our voting. It's our power. It's what we do, and that economic prosperity is true freedom and it is true prosperity and it should be given to everyone. That's why I let other people invest with me, which if you want to invest me with us, there's a fund one link down. We just rolled out a fund. It's only out for like two weeks here. So you so probably got to hurry. This is coming out. We may only have one leak left, but find it. I allow other people to invest with us, to learn from us. And that's why I share all our information because I want to empower you to make sure that things that seem foggy are clear. You can move forward in confidence and knowledge. Thanks, everybody. Please like this, subscribe. You can also see some of these charts and data on my Instagram. Go follow there, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody.